0: Miscarriage is for me. It was complex grieving. I mean, this baby it's living and dying, and that it was all happening right in my body. I think women experience the the body trauma of this really intensely. You know, it could be hard for even finding words for this. And I think that's partly because in times of deep grief, words are given to us. We have rituals. That's why we have funerals. You know, but there's no kind of cultural space that acknowledges that grief. And because we don't have that typically for women that walk through miscarriage, it can be a wordless experience.
1: This modern world is of particular interest to women. Betwixt, at the intersection of faith and culture. Well, hi, friends. Welcome to the Betwixt podcast. I'm Deb Gregory. Today, we're going to talk about something that is very feminine, but I want to encourage, to implore male listeners to fully enter and listen well to this conversation. I would even encourage you to share this episode with your pastors and community leaders and invite conversations where needed. Today we're talking about the very painful topic of miscarriage. The conversation you're about to hear has required a a foundation of courage and healing in order for Tish and I to even share our stories so publicly. And as a heads up, we veer into some political territory, but I ask that you take off your party lenses and just listen. Please don't take our stories and wrap them around your ideology. Our invitation is to compassion, and then to actions that open up spaces for lament, grief, and healing. Hi. Hi.
0: How are you? I'm good.
1: My guest is Tish Harrison Warren. Tish is an Anglican priest and the author of one of my favorite books, The Liturgy of the Ordinary. Since this episode was recorded, Christianity Today published an article that Tish wrote about her experience with miscarriage and grief. In it, she describes the church as an alternative political community, not primarily because of how we vote, but because of how we live together as a people. She went on to say that part of our political witness is to care for families who have lost unborn children to practice together liturgies of mourning for those who were never born, and if possible, to help us bury our dead. And so today, Tish shares her story along with some ideas of how we can put all of this into practice. Tish, I am so thrilled to uh, have this conversation with you. It's been on my mind since the beginning of the podcast For me, liminal space really hits home with my body as a woman. Yeah. And my own experience of infertility, fertility, loss, all of that is wrapped up in this kind of mysterious, sacred space. I find it really difficult to know how to talk about it. So I'm really happy to sit with you, another woman who has experienced many of these same things, so that we can just open this up and have a great conversation about it. Yeah. So would you mind telling us a little
0: bit about who you are, what you do, what you love? Oh, what I love. What a great question. Um, okay. So who I am, my name is Tish Harrison Warren I grew up in Austin, Texas, and I'm an Anglican priest, but was in campus ministry for eight years and worked with folks in poverty and folks who are struggling with addiction. Many years before that, my husband and I came here to be associate rectors at Church of the Ascension in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and we job-shared the position of associate rector. But just this month, in the last few weeks, I've transitioned to writer-in-residence. So I still preach there and work with young adults some, but it's just opened up time for writing to be really actually part of what I do for the church. That's amazing. Yeah, what a it, gift. It, it, it has been such a gift. So I'm a writer-in-residence now at Church of the Ascension, and I'm a mother of two little girls. And what I love, man, I really love hiking and being out in nature. I love tea. I have a bit of an obsession with tea. I love hanging out with my kids. I love guacamole. <laughs> <laughs> All the good stuff. <laughs> but I, also, I really, really love words. I love reading. I love poetry. I love really beautifully written things. So I kind of feast on words. That's some things I love.
1: That's beautiful. Oh, well today I wanted to have this conversation with you about the topic of miscarriage. And it's a really difficult topic that I think is really thick with taboo. Mm -hmm. On one hand, um, it's something that we don't talk about publicly. A lot of times we don't even talk about it privately. And I was really struck by the way you opened up a blog post that you wrote about your own experience with miscarriage. You started off. And um, with a quote from the movie Six Degrees of Separation, and the quote said, how do we keep what happens to us? How do we fit it into life without turning it into an anecdote? So how do, how do we engage in this conversation about something that's so important, so sacred, something that so many women face and struggle with this question of how do I even begin to
0: talk about it? Yeah. So how do we hold space for that? Yeah. That's a great question. That piece that I wrote, which is called Holding Space, I wrote it because I was stuck. I felt stuck mm. in the sense that um, I'm a writer, so there's a public ministry to that, and so I'm kind of known a little bit publicly. From the outside, someone looking at how my book was doing, it would look like kind of a glowing year professionally. Meanwhile, I was having a really, really personally terrible year. <laughs> I lost my father that year pretty suddenly. One week before he died, we moved from Austin to Pittsburgh, and then he was back in Texas and passed away. So... Wow. One week after you moved? Yeah. Oh, wow. So it was awful. And then had a miscarriage in late February. And then we found out we were pregnant again and had a, a really complicated, hard pregnancy where I was on medically restricted activity for about six weeks, and then we lost our second baby at 14 weeks. We lost a little boy. So uh, I lost my home and my dad and two, two babies in that year, and it was hard, it was really, really hard, but I didn't write about it publicly. It felt disingenuous to just, you know, be writing about evangelicals and Trump or something when all of this kind of private personal pain was happening. At the same time, I wasn't really ready to share everything that was happening. I hadn't processed it. I, I needed some space to myself in that. And so just as a writer, I didn't want to too quickly start making that all of that grief really public, you know? So how public to be, how much to process? kind of out loud and, and through writing was a big question for me. And, mm-hmm. and so that quote about how do you take what has happened in your life and own it and be honest about it, but not make it an anecdote, not make it something that you use, you know, becomes just an illustration in mm-hmm. a sermon or an illustration in a piece that you're writing for something else. I didn't want the loss of my children to become part of my quote-unquote platform in any mm-hmm. way. Because they're real people and they're, they have dignity on their own right, and yet I wanted to share my story. And figuring out the timing of that was really tricky. Yes. So I more or less wrote that piece as something like an announcement of where I am. To say this has happened. There's no moral to the story. There's no application. Like I'm just saying that this has happened and this is where I am. Hmm. A lot of that is going to be more applicable to, to me as a writer, mm-hmm. but I. I do think this basic struggle of how public should I be about my grief, about private grief, is something that all women wrestle with who have had a miscarriage. Because the other kinds of losses, if I if I lost my spouse, for instance, that would be very public. That would be very known. The miscarriage was only known to those that we chose to reveal that to. Mm-hmm. And so, having to try to sort of figure out how to go about doing that is is a tricky part I think of this kind of grief Mm -hmm. and I I don't think there's a right answer I mean obviously some people are more private than others but um Mm And, and people process grief differently. And I am an introvert who is an external processor. So it makes me a writer because I want to be alone and tell you about my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> with well thought out, precise words. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly,
1: with just yeah. the right words. <laughs> I feel like it's, it's so tricky too because, well, here's the problem. It's hard to know how to put words to this experience at least in my own experience. I mean, I've noticed that there's a lot of taboo related to even being pregnant. Like, there are all these rules, like you don't announce it publicly until your second trimester or, you know, you don't tell people unless they're really close to you. Um, And people do it different ways, but this was kind of the way that I was reinforced. Um, and then there's just a whole lot of taboo associated with pregnancy. People are careful to give you a seat or whatever, you know, you're always in danger. <laughs> but I guess one way I've been thinking about taboo is that really it's kind of the dangerous aspect of what is sacred. But sometimes we miss the sacredness of our own fecundity as women. Just the fact that we have some kind of capacity to hold life and sometimes death within our own bodies, mm-hmm. we've made it so medical that we've forgotten to really honor that that's something sacred. How did you walk into that space of even becoming pregnant and the story of of longing?
0: Yeah, so I have two daughters, but I really wanted more children. Uh, even when we got married, we wanted a big family. My ideal was four. I always wanted four kids. It felt like that was kind of the perfect number. But I never got pregnant very easily. Yeah. I don't know how much, I don't know yeah. how much to share like publicly, but we, so yeah. we've been married 14 years and we have not been on birth control for really the last 12 and we've had two kids. So with our first daughter, it took a couple years to get pregnant. And we never did the fertility route. Like, we, I've never been to a fertility doctor. We did eventually get pregnant with her. And then, and then my second daughter, we got pregnant pretty easily. Two years later, got pregnant with her. And then after that, we haven't tried very hard. So with our first daughter, we did the whole like, taking your temperature and charting and that whole thing to try to get pregnant we that's honestly such a pain in the neck and no fun for anyone that we we hadn't done that since we had our second daughter so the first miscarriage that I had in 2017 I found out the day after my father's funeral that I was pregnant oh wow I remember I was by myself because my husband and two kids were still back in Texas, so I was all alone in Pittsburgh. Found out that I was pregnant and all day long I was, I was like this emotional whirlwind of every possible emotion you can imagine. I was so excited to be pregnant. I had just taken a new job two weeks before. So I was like, Oh, this is crazy and hard timing, um, to tell my boss this, but I was so happy and I was so sad about my dad. This <laughs> was so deep in grief about my dad, but it was this whole sort of like circle of life and death and birth. And so then we, we miscarried three weeks later and it was still early. I mean, I don't, I don't even know how far along we were. I never actually got to see a physician before I started miscarrying, so it was very early. So when we got pregnant a month later, we were completely surprised because, again, as I said, like we are not the sort that get pregnant easily. And so we got pregnant a month later by surprise, and and we're so happy, we're so happy. But it was a... Fearful experience for me too because I had just miscarried. It. And so there was a lot of nervousness about losing the baby, and I was bleeding throughout the pregnancy. So there was a lot of fear. It was a really fearful, difficult, I want to even say traumatic time. I know that that term trauma I think can be overused, but it was so bodily. Um, we had to have a lot of sonograms. I was rushed to the emergency room bleeding like once a week it felt like for a while i just remember waking up in the middle of the night and and being so afraid about whether or not i would start bleeding again Mm -hmm. um i think women experience the the body trauma of this really intensely in ways that men i don't think can understand i mean this baby's living and dying and that it was all happening right in my body wow the thing is, is, I got way better, and we were very, very hopeful. Everything was looking great. I had what's called a subchorionic hematoma, okay. which many, many, many women have and don't miscarry. So the chances were still very good, and my body was getting way better. And then after that, we came in for a sonogram, and, and the baby had died. There was no heartbeat. It was devastating. It was very sad. I remember my husband just sort of collapsing in grief. He just was holding up so much confidence and hope that things would work out. And, um, and so he was really dashed. And I think at the time I was just sort of shocked. And then there was a little part of me that hoped they were wrong. my primary care physician is a friend of mine and I was like, Can you just check one more time? I just I just couldn't quite give up hope that that it would be okay and so she did graciously, but we had lost our son. How
1: were you doing throughout that experience?
0: It was awful. The doctors recommend doing a DNC, which is a procedure Essentially, it's a way to get the baby's body out of my body because I had hemorrhaged pretty severely with my first miscarriage. I was going to have to have the baby's body removed in a hospital setting to try to keep me safe and alive. Um, But because of that, I couldn't, I wanted the baby's remains. Like, it felt like the only way to honor this is a human being, a real human being. I think that this is fraught because of the whole cultural argument about the personhood of unborn children that brings up abortion and pro-life and all of those so i have a piece that's coming out in christianity today in their november print issue it was about our own process of trying to get our son's body back to bury the remains And I think when you were saying about getting sort of overly medicalized or overly abstracted, I mean like when somebody loses an actual baby, an actual child, or a stillbirth, and I'm not saying those are the same experiences, because they're they're not. Miscarriage you experience differently than that. Mm. Nevertheless, it's so clear that there's a loss there. It's so clear that there's something to grieve, and I think with miscarriage, because our culture can be sort of divided about whether or not this is actually a human being even, or a person with dignity and rights. The unborn child is is an actual person. It can throw you into this really kind of complex grieving where you're grieving the loss of a baby, but there's no kind of cultural space that acknowledges that grief. By the time we miscarried at 14 weeks, we'd probably had about a dozen sonograms. So I had seen the baby multiple times and seen the baby growing. Mm. And so it it was really important to my husband and I to try to honor this baby's actual body in some way because we'd seen it so many times. But the hospital had no idea what to do with that. They didn't know how to... I asked, can we get the body back? And the doctor had no idea. He said, I've never been asked that before. So he didn't know even it. We got mired in this like bureaucratic system that had no idea. You know, if you have a loved one pass away, there's a protocol, right? They give you social worker that gives you like a number for a funeral home. You know, there's a protocol here. And there just was no protocol. Nobody knew what to do. And the sort of the bigger issue there is I think, Miscarriage is for me, it was complex grieving. Mm. This was a real human being that we lost, and my kids knew about their sibling that was in my tummy. And so it was real, especially for my oldest child who's eight now. It was, she was seven at the time, but it was a huge grief for her, a huge loss. She really wanted a sibling. Mm. Um, so walking through that is hard. And you were saying, um, you know, it could be hard for even finding. Words for this. And I think that's partly because in times of deep grief, words are given to us. We're too broken to be able to process this on our own. So we have rituals. That's why we have funerals. Mm -hmm. You know, people hand you words and say, pray these prayers, sing these songs. Let me tell you the gospel. Let me give you hope. We almost need words from our community because we're too deep in grief to, Mm -hmm. to, process this ourselves mm-hmm. and and because we don't have that typically for women that walk through miscarriage it can be a, a wordless experience right oh, wow. this whole process of trying to get our son's body back, we were connected to Anglicans for Life, which is a pro-life group that helped me to actually be able to get the remains of my son and and we had him cremated and buried. But I remember the president of that group telling me, you know, people are going to think that your grief should be shorter than it actually is and just ignore them. So for me, grief was like a long, slow burn. I just took a long time. The baby's due date was in January and I went on a silent retreat when the baby would have been due, which was ironically the same week of the anniversary of my father's death. So I knew it would be a hard week. So I I went to a monastery. I was there for 48 hours and the first 24 hours I thought, I'm okay. Like I'm, I'm doing all right and i just slept i just uh, out of the first 24 hours i probably slept 14 hours i just slept oh wow after i slept for so long i just wept i just wept the whole time i wrote i journaled i wrote poetry and i just wept it was like and this is months after the miscarriage because i had the miscarriage in july and this is january you know i was still i was still in grief you know it's the grief that a lot of women and mothers but people in general experience where you're deep in grief, and you still got to get dinner on the table, and you still got to go on with your life. And so it was it was really through the process of slowing down, and probably mm-hmm. sleeping for 14 hours, okay. that my body sort of relaxed enough to say, okay, I like you can feel this again, and go back to that place of grief. I mean, I just think grief is long, it's very long, and it kind of ekes out in little doses, right? Mm hmm. And it catches you off guard sometimes, doesn't it? Yes, almost always. I was at a coffee shop this week and there was a sweet little boy and I asked how old he was and I realized it would have been within weeks the same age as our son had he had been born. That was hard. I, I sort of took my coffee and left because it was very sad. So mm. um, sadness comes yeah. and goes, right? Comes like, goes. Tides. It, yeah, yeah, you kind of have high tide and low tide with with grief yeah and you, you go with it you just go with it yeah uh, for me
1: my second miscarriage it was just at the beginning of Lent and I was supposed to sing at my church mm-hmm. um, and I had been preparing to sing the song Abide With Me there's a verse that I was supposed to sing as a solo that said where is thy sting death
0: mm. where
1: is thy sting death where grave So I had been rehearsing that verse all week, and then I miscarried. So I didn't go to the service. I mean, no one would know that, but as soon as that song comes on, that's always going to be a trigger for me of grief. Oh,
0: yeah. Oh, that totally makes sense.
1: Yeah. I don't think it will ever go away. I'll never stop feeling that Mm as a trigger to remind me of that loss. We had a lot of infertility problems, and I was older when I had my children, so,
0: but the following Easter, I found out that I was pregnant again. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's liturgically amazing. I mean, just that uh, Ash Wednesday is the day we we remember death and Easter's new life. That's... Yeah,
1: and I got to sing at that service instead, and that was really beautiful.
0: (laughs) What an incredible story. That's an amazing story.
1: Yeah, you know we all have have the stories. Can we talk about topic of liminality? Yeah. What does liminality mean to you? What do you think of? Like, what what does that draw out for you?
0: I mean, liminality implies so much, right? It's the in between. So the already and the not yet. Mm. Pregnancy itself is such a beautiful picture of liminality, right? Because mm. you're. You're a mother. I mean, I spent 14 weeks with this little human in me. I talked to him and prayed for him and dreamed about him. And, you know, he was there when I woke up. And there when I went to sleep, like your baby's kind of always there because... He or she is in your body. So mm-hmm. and yet don't experience the fullness of motherhood because that comes from knowing an actual human being who you can see and hold and know what their likes and dislikes are in the world and and so it's this in between space with motherhood. It's this in-between space. Every time that I'm near a human being born, it feels like, man, we are like right on the cusp of life and death. Like this is a dangerous moment, uh, Mm -hmm. but it's it's a moment of life. And so there is this deep in-between. And then the loss of babies is like absolutely about the already and not yet. We have this loss, but we hope, I hope for the resurrection of my children. All four of my children, my two babies I lost and my other babies. Mm. So it's this holding on and letting go, the liminal space in that, life and death. It's this desperate desire to protect, but at the end of the day, inability to protect Mm-hmm. and it's the already not yet of sort of knowing that god loves your children more than you do knowing god will care for your children but having to also watch their suffering and watch their death and hope for the resurrection there's all kinds of liminality that mothers mm-hmm. up i think
1: yeah why is it important for us to hold space for these liminal moments especially the ones that i mean i think it's important to hold space for all the liminal moments even the ones that bring joy but particularly as we're talking today about miscarriage, holding space for the grief in that. Why is that so important?
0: Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, part of the reason is because these are real lives with dignity. And so just like holding space for for the loss of any loved one is important. Part of the way we honor that this human being had dignity and worth and value and they mattered to us is to grieve them. I mean, even through the loss of my father, I've learned that grief is complex and messy. Relationships are complex, but I think part of why we grieve is because we love. And so mm-hmm. we honor our loved ones through our feelings of grief and loss. We miss them. <laughs> mm-hmm. With miscarriage, it's interesting because you're missing what wasn't right. You're missing, mm-hmm. you're missing a dream. But you're nostalgic for what would have been. Grief is
1: a funny thing. I like the way you wrote about it as sand. Mm-hmm. It kind of gets everywhere, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, sand after a beach trip. When I come back, I just feel like for weeks, I'm just finding sand in random places. I'll be about my average day very far from the ocean. And then I'll open up a book and there's this little monument, right, to the sea to remember, oh, a few weeks ago, we were at the ocean, and it just it felt like that with the grief. It just felt like in the middle of the day, all of a sudden, I'd find a note that my daughter had written to the baby, and then there it is. It's just sort of I'm going about my day and then kind of blindsided by the memory of this. and With our first miscarriage, very few people knew about it. We didn't tell our daughters because it was so early. But our second miscarriage, it was later, and so more people knew. But also, I had to go to the emergency room. Often, it felt like these emergencies would occur on Saturday night or Sunday morning. So I'm a priest. I preach. I had to miss several services because I would start hemorrhaging. Mm. I'd start bleeding. And so I would have to go to the hospital. Because I missed services, we sort of just had to tell people what was up. And, um, And because, you know mom was in the hospital for a day, my kids wanted to know what was going on. Mm -hmm. So we also wanted to get our community praying. So we told people really early. And for me, that was good. It was good that the second time I was walking through the miscarriage really with community knowing what was happening. I know that that's not the case for everyone. Some people prefer to grieve in private. But for me, it was a blessing that people knew. And people were kind of walking with our whole family through that. Hmm. But I also think grief is a very normal and natural experience that all of us have when we encounter a real and important loss. And so if we don't make space for that, I think, well, the word my husband and I use is that it will come out sideways, that we don't address this, we don't do the work of grief, if we don't make space to kind of process this with God and our community It's not that you get to skip grief. It's just that you, in some ways, will be malformed and misshapen by trying to avoid the pain of it. Hmm. And I do feel like when we suffer a deep loss, like a miscarriage it is a long, slow pain. It's a chronic pain. I mean, this is a loss I'll carry for the rest of my life. It's not going away. And so I have to learn to really lean into that and to live into that, or it will actually make it harder to heal. I think Mm -hmm. it'll distort my walk, my gait, if I don't learn to kind of lean into the pain and live into the pain. So Mm. I think Americans are terrible at grief and Mm -hmm. at really embracing grief I think we go very very quickly to outrage or to numbing out to distracting ourselves from grief I really think almost in the DNA of America there's this kind of move forward don't think about it don't feel it and I think it makes us deeply distorted people
1: (laughs) Uh, I think that's true but what do we do (laughs) we grieve that's what we do But how? No one has taught us. (laughs) Well, teach us. I mean, what, what are, that'll be my second book. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) How to grieve (laughs) well. One of the things that you're doing has really caught my attention of making space within the church to process the grief. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how do you think about this as a priest and make space for that?
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, one way we've done this around miscarriage specifically as a church is we had a service. I think we called it the service for memorial and lament. But we invited anyone from our community who had experienced miscarriage, a regretted abortion, a stillbirth or infertility and wanted to just have a space to grieve. And so my husband and I, but mostly my husband, wrote the liturgy and really pulled from pre-existing liturgical services on this. Anglicans have prayers for everything, so that we have something called the Book of Occasional Services. And in that, there's prayers for the loss of a child. And so he took some of this and he adapted it. And um It was really just lament. There was no like, okay, time to be okay now. At the end, you know, we read the Lament Psalms and just really had space for grief together. I think it's too much of a burden in grief to have to find words for that. And yet we cannot think things without words around them. That's how we think. And so we need the church to come alongside and say, here's some words to help to put around your grief. The Psalms are amazing in that. And so we had a liturgy around that. I preached around that. And it was a powerful service. It was a very important service. But we also do try to make space for grief even through things like funerals and burial as part of this. Pain, pain, pain. I understand the impulse to want funerals to be a celebration and a celebration of life, and there's that kind of movement. And I think we are celebrating life, but I get a little concerned with too much of that language that we are trying to just not acknowledge the real depth of grief that's there. So, I try to really allow funerals to be sad. It's okay that they're sad. And to allow people to be sad. I remember someone in the last year said, Look, I'm okay with grieving, but I don't want to be sad. (laughs) Wow. And I just said, well, it's not really the way it works. I mean, I just think we're going to have to walk through seasons of sadness, and that's going to have to be okay.
2: Close my eyes, it gets closer.
0: The other thing I think that we really try to do in our church is don't hurry grief. Life continues. We got to get dinner on the table, as I said before, but I don't think you can put a timeline on that. It, it is hard when you have to work and continue with your life to actually find space for grief. So. I have found it very helpful to actually set times and spaces for that through things like silent retreats, you know, take 24 hours and get away. That doesn't have to be that you sit and cry for 24 hours, but journal. Go do something that nourishes you. For me, that's like go out and hike. For other people, that's going to be like doing visual art. I don't know what that is for everyone. But to really make actual space
1: for that, one of the things that I was introduced to when my husband and I, he's a professor and he took a sabbatical in Israel a couple of years back. And we lived in a community where it's predominantly Jewish Orthodox women. They introduced me to a whole different way of thinking about my body. They do what's called a mikvah, which is mm-hmm. a, a ritual bath that they still do. The idea comes out of Leviticus, for them at least. It was honoring their cycle. Mm. It was honoring and giving back to God. It was prayer of renewal. What they did was help me think, okay, it's not just my emotions that are experiencing this kind of grief, but it's my whole body.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely
1: true. Yeah, so why not take your body and do something with it that is prayerful? And actually, what you wrote in your book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, has really kind of stuck with me. Um, you begin, I think, in the first chapter talking about baptism. I think you even took your child to the fount mm-hmm. of your church, yeah. that embodied moment of sticking your fingers and stirring the waters. And the way that I've thought about that is, oh, sometimes we just need to stir the waters of our baptism to remember that process of life and death and to remember that you know as the the Jewish woman would do this when they get into that water for them it's like this represents the womb of the world the water of creation
0: yeah that is absolutely <laughs> yeah that
1: that's beautiful yeah so that actually became the most significant thing that I've done and it just so happened that 20 years before I had been baptized in the sea of Galilee so exactly 20 years later a friend of mine went with me back to the place where i was baptized where i just took the grief and everything that i was carrying with me back into the waters and Mm. um and we we did it we did it naked i mean we were like skinny dipping in the sea of Galilee (laughs) 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 in the middle of the night but it was it was an
0: incredible (laughs) memory yeah but it was so
1: strangely beautiful in that darkness, just to submerge my body that had been carrying all this grief, and then to come up with hope. And that's the the root of the word mikvah, um, which is found in Genesis. The root is the word hope. Hmm. So that for me has been just a really powerful expression of kind of stirring the waters of my own baptism. and. Bringing my body back into this place of just prayer and submission and hope.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I have so much to say about that. I'm not sure where to go. That's a beautiful story. And I, I really think that all miscarriages are really the body trauma. So mm-hmm. your body remembers it. So for me, I have been to a counselor and had to do some real work around body trauma specifically. Mm. Um Because I do think your body is a place of life and it becomes a grave, right? It becomes a place where someone you love has died. And that is traumatic. And the experience of having to lose a baby and all the all the bleeding and difficulty and pain, even nobody warned you about the pain. Nobody told me my first miscarriage that it feels like you're having contractions, that there's a lot of trauma around that. And so I think it's very appropriate to have healing prayer over your body to do body work, I mean, to pray with your body as part of that. This (laughs) is, Side note, this is a good argument for a female priests because it allows me to go into spaces with women that would be totally inappropriate for men and, uh, right. and pray for them and pray for their body. Yeah. The baptism piece I haven't thought about, but that's an interesting. So. This is going to make every, if there's any male listeners, they're about to get uncomfortable. But this is true, and this is church history, that they have found really early baptismal fonts from the first, like, four centuries of the church that are uh, yannic. Do you know like, shaped like a vagina? Like, look vaginal? Intentionally. Because it was, these baptismal fonts are calling out new birth. And so, these fonts are supposed to make you think of an actual birth right and so baptismal fonts being yannick it's like deeply in the christian tradition and massively feminist and like Totally shocking at the same time. But
1: I know I've read early church fathers who talk about the baptism font as a womb.
0: Yeah. Right. And so it's really supposed to remind you of that, especially the last church I went to, South Austin, this church plant we were part of. There was this sort of unspoken rule that on baptism Sundays, everyone there gets wet. They, oh, what's it called? In a spurred. Juris, Aspergis, something like that. The thing that, that that priests, in liturgical service, they dip into the baptismal water and they fling it. Part of the reason I don't know the name is we jokingly call it the Holy Super Soaker because you fling it (laughs) and, um, you'll see Catholic priests do this, Anglican priests do this, and they'll bless the audience and some will say, remember your baptism, remember your baptism, and so that you actually get Sprinkled with the water that you have just baptized new members of your congregation with. And so it reminded me of a little bit of what you're saying. When I said Americans are terrible at grief, I think Jewish folks have really beautiful rituals around grief. Lauren Winner wrote a book called Mudhouse Sabbath about things that Christians can learn from the Jewish community, and she has a chapter on grief. That's my favorite chapter in that book. Okay. And it would be worth anyone listening who's interested, it would be worth getting Medhouse Sabbath and reading the chapter on grief, because the kind of rituals that that community has around grief, so honors and makes space for grief in the way that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think, something that we as Christians, it can absolutely draw on as we form kind of our own traditions and liturgies around grief.
1: What words of encouragement or wisdom would you give to those who are church leaders who may be thinking, yeah, I should probably do something about grief, or I don't even know what to do. Maybe maybe the pastor is a male and doesn't even know how to approach this topic of uh, miscarriage and how to walk with women grieving through that. How do we make space for that grief process?
0: I mean, I think some part of it is acknowledging the grief. That can be from the pulpit. You know, when you're bringing up examples of suffering, bring up examples that relate to women, bring up infertility, bring up miscarriage, bring up loss of children. But then also when a woman who you know experiences this, just acknowledging the real grief that is there. One of the things that blessed me tremendously is the day we found out that we had lost our son, We texted some folks, and the word got around, and our bishop showed up at our house, and he came and asked if he could pray for us, and he just kind of hung around. He just loved us, right? And Mm -hmm. I don't even remember anything he said. I don't even think he said very much. He was just—he prayed, he made tea, he was just kind of around. And and that was a gift to us. I also really do think every church in America should consider doing memorials, doing— liturgies, funerals for miscarried children. Uh, mm-hmm. If the family asks for that, we do it here. So we have done that lots of times. And offer that, you know, if people don't want that, that's fine too, but offer that. That's really wonderful. But even once a year, you can do it for just anyone who experienced grief or even infertility that year. you can, mm. That's something that can be part of the rhythm of your church. And it's worth doing.
1: That's so great. It's ironic. I was at my gynecologist's office this morning and she asked, you know, <laughs> what I'm doing like today. This is the most
0: female <laughs> podcast I have ever had in my life. I heard that male people actually listen to this and are not like, this isn't for me. Because we listen to podcasts about your stuff like constantly. Like we listen to like being a husband and father. So let's talk about gynecologist's.
1: Yeah, so she asked me what I'm doing today. She always loves keeping track of what my husband and I are doing. Um, So I told her about the podcast today and our conversation. She said, oh, you should talk with our chaplain because, you know, once a year we hold a service here at the hospital for those who have experienced loss. And I thought, that's great. But why aren't our churches doing that was kind of the question that I had. We don't need the medical industry to um, be the only space where we honor and grieve those things. Right? Right. And I absolutely
0: agree with that. The church really should be leading in this in many ways. Oh, we're not, but I hope we would be the pastors and church leaders should be able to hopefully walk with people in grief because <laughs> that's a huge part of what, of what you do. I mean, it's not a radically feminist statement to say, you know, when women grieve fertility, That's real grief, just like other kinds of grief and things like job loss and things like death. And so approach a family like you would any family in grief. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have ideas? Do you have thoughts?
1: I think what you're saying is great just to make space for that. I do think churches who are heavily male led uh, sometimes don't think about how difficult it would be for a woman to come for spiritual help.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, if
1: there's no woman available who would be a pastor or shepherd for them through this time.
0: Yeah, that's really, really true. I think every church in America needs to have female leaders available to be mothers, spiritual mothers to the congregation. That doesn't mean that every church in America has to ordain women. I understand that There's a biblical argument to be had there, and I respect people that fall on both sides of that argument. That said, if you're a church that doesn't ordain women, you need to go out of your way to make sure there are godly, trained, mature, equipped, theologically robust women that are available to women that are walking through things like miscarriage, but also marital problems. I have winced at conversations I've overheard between male clergy and women who who were going through divorce or whose husbands were unfaithful. And the kind of questions that they ask women or, or the way that they interact with women, I just think, oh my gosh, the power dynamic in this conversation is so awful. And just the sense of this woman deeply needs a female spiritual leader to be walking with her through this. And so if women in your church don't have women that they can talk to about that, and women that can ask those hard questions, it is a hole in pastoral care that is the Mm -hmm. size of a Mack truck. I mean, it is just a massive Mm -hmm. failure of pastoral care. So there has to be sort of women in those spaces. And this is a place, even the way my husband and I have grieved, my husband grieves a miscarriage, as I said, I have but we've grieved very, very differently. And that this baby was real to me in a way that it just wasn't to him because I experienced this in my actual body. That's yeah. right.
1: The bodily trauma. And that's not to say male pastors can't be empathetic. You know, at my church, the pastors, many of them have experienced miscarriage in very yes. I would very traumatic ways, even as the husbands. That's right. Um, Yeah. That's true. I know that when I had my miscarriage, I didn't feel like I had a safe place to actually go and process that. Yeah. And I didn't know that that was a need at that time, but it kind of exposed that for me. Yeah. So I think this is a good, important conversation (laughs) that I hope many people will take up in their churches.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I, I think mothers and fathers are different right? And the way that they experience their children and they experience the loss of their children is different. And that's okay. That's, that's not bad. And that doesn't preclude empathy at all. But, but yes, I was very grateful for the men in my life who cared for us in this grief. The bishop that showed up at our house was a man. But I was also very grateful for the female pastors in my life in this season.
1: Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Tish, thank you so much for opening yourself up, being vulnerable even and sharing this conversation.
0: I really yeah. appreciate it. Thank you for this time and let's learn to grieve together as a church <laughs> for the love of God.
1: <laughs> yes, let's. Let's do it. <laughs> thank you for leading the way. As I worked on this episode, it stirred up some memories and some grief in a way that I wasn't quite expecting. And maybe it has for you too. Until I shared my story with Tish, I hadn't realized how much the song Abide With Me had anchored me to both pain and hope. Quite honestly, the song and the memory of death still stings. But I decided to take a risk and to heed Tisha's call to walk through the grief together with those in my church community. And so I started with the words that have been given to me, lyrics written by Henry in 1847. And I mixed them with a beautiful musical arrangement that indelible grace so graciously let me borrow. And then my dear friend Joelle Hostetler. She came alongside me to play the keys and to sing with me. And then my pastor, Joe Byler, he dropped everything on his busy plate to add his beautiful guitar work to support our voices, mingling his own memory and lament of miscarriage with mine. So here we are, five years later, still learning to grieve together as a church, and in doing so, we're discovering how to abide together close to the vine. So to close out this episode, we give you this song as a prayer. In life and death, Lord, abide with us.
2: With me fast falls the even tight the darkness deep. Bad with